You're listening to Laughing Historically with Adam Latz, Adam Cooney, and Dr. History Scholar. Okay, hey everybody, how's it going? (laughs) This is the first episode on President's Day of the podcast we haven't named yet. (laughs) We have a working title of Ha Ha History. Or hysterical. Oh, Uh, yeah. Hysterically historical. Hysterically historical. Mm-hmm. Uh, all so, of those sound good to me. I'll tell you what, we'll, we'll put it out on Twitter to all our listeners. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking into the void here. Um, mm. All right, well, we're going to start with uh, this day in history uh, with Dr. Civic. Yeah, so I, I picked up three, three things today that I think are interesting things that I found happen this day in history. Uh, two are in seemingly direct contradiction to each other. So on this day in 1613, Michael I was unanimously elected Tsar of Russia, thus beginning the Romanov dynasty. Also on this day in 1848, Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels published the Communist Manifesto, which seems ironic. I did pretty, wait, real quick though, voted by who? Oh, I'm sure the nobility of Russia, uh-huh. you know, the, like the six people who counted. Well, they're notoriously ethical, the nobility of Russia. Well, and, and Russian elections are notoriously, you know, fair, right? <laughs> Nobody ever wins like 113% mm-hmm. of a Russian election. That's never happened. That's never happened, especially not in Ukraine today. Oh, because mm, mm, No, never. Or in, you know, Chechnya. <laughs> the Chechens definitely love Vladimir Putin at a rate which would warrant 110% voter turnout <laughs> in his favor. Um, And then the most ridiculous thing I found was that in 1898, an English-born Australian fought an Irishman in an American-promoted event in Mexico to become the world heavyweight boxing champion. Wow. It's better than the Super Bowl. (laughs) (laughs) Where they're like, world champion Packers. And you're like, of Canada and America? Is that our world? Or, Or the World Series. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It is actually world, like that's global. <laughs> yeah, actually, that's why. Show. That's why America fought in World War II just to expand the National Baseball League. <laughs> <laughs> so there, we have Japan and South Korea now in the Dominican Republic, so we're good. We're a global sport. <laughs> okay. Well, um, so the topic for today: Have either of you ever heard of a man named Daniel Edgar Sickles? I have not. Uh, no. Okay, so Dan Sickles, Daniel Edgar Sickles, uh, 1819 to 1914, is quite possibly the most controversial figure of the American Civil War. Now, this is a large claim, given that the Civil War is filled with controversial figures like Nathan Bedford Forrest, slave trader, war criminal, clan leader. I was going to say, you mean every slave owner? Like every <laughs> yeah, single that's, one? That's <laughs> fair. Uh, and, uh, and William Tecumseh Sherman, uh, the scourge of Georgia and the Carolinas, pretty controversial. You mean Saint William Tecumseh <laughs> Sherman. Doing the God. <laughs> Lord's Doing word. God's word. <laughs> uh, but Dan Sickles was controversial in his own very extensive lifetime. Uh, he was a Tammany Hall politician, uh, the premier Democratic Party machine of the 19th century an ambassador to multiple foreign nations where he committed various faux pas. Uh, Wait, do you know any? Do you know any? Yes. Oh, we're oh, getting there? All right. We're we're gonna gonna pause. Pause. This is what, what this whole podcast is about. <laughs> it's about faux pas. Where am I? Who <laughs> 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 started this? I blacked uh, out for a bit. <laughs> he was an acquitted murderer, a serial adulterer, a mediocre general, and a loudmouth self-promoter. 
even his lifetime is a matter of some controversy. He was either born on October 19th, 1819, or October 19th, 1825. Could I, another clarifying yeah. question. Yeah, sure. How can you be an acquitted murderer? Does oh, we're going to talk about <laughs> that. <laughs> like, doesn't that make you not a murderer? <laughs> no. I thought, all right. I feel like, isn't that like Trump? It's like halfway to Trump. <laughs> like, that's halfway. Um, I mean. Dan, Dan Sickles does have a little bit of Trump energy. To it. There is yeah. a little bit of that. Oh. Not a lot, um, because Dan Sickles We gotta make it current. Has <laughs> We gotta relate to <laughs> Dan our Sickles. audience. You're being real meta right now. <laughs> Dan Sickles skirts around the edge of competency on, okay. on, on a lot of the things he does. It's very it's a real it's a real line that he's walking. Um but yeah, so he was either born on October 19th, 1819, or October 8, 19th, 1825. And we'll get to the reasons for different birthdays later, because that is also a delightfully weird and, uh, yeah, just weird thing. All right. um, so today, I think we'll just cover him up to the Civil War. Okay. So that, that's what we'll cover today, right. up, okay. him up to the Civil War. Uh, so really, what I want to talk about is the murder of Philip Barton Key the son of Francis Scott Key, the man who wrote the uh, national anthem. Mm. Was, he, was he a rich boy, the, the murder victim? Uh, yes, but all of the people we're going to talk about, oh. because these are 19th century American historical figures, mm -hmm. you're rolling the dice, they're a rich, <laughs> they're a rich person. Ah. Um, all right, well, to our listening audience, that means none of them matter, actually, <laughs> as humans. <laughs> So before uh, 19th century rich white men, we can just really just stop pretending that they had feelings or a soul. So that's pretty good. Um, They've been canceled. We've just wiped them off. <laughs> so, so I've labeled part one, getting away with murder. Uh, as I stated earlier, Sickles was born either in 1819 or in 1825. And it is conjectured that he was born on the earlier date. I, I am a believer that he was born on the earlier date. But he lied about his uh, birthday in 1852 when he would have been 32 years old because he married Teresa Baggioli, who was 16. Mm. So, Wait, the, but that the, was part of the century, it wasn't. Things change. I mean, what? <laughs> the Greeks were like fucking 11 year olds or something oh, like that? Man. I mean, so. on an unrelated note, have you ever wanted them to invent time travel? I just thought it completely unrelated. <laughs> oh, legit. I blacked out again. That was <laughs> so, so, by the 19th century, it wasn't cool for 32 year old men to marry 16 year old girls that, mm. that wasn't cool it was really so so they put that in law that is surprising and not not in law but it was definitely something that was definitely frowned upon mm. uh and especially if you wanted to be a respectable member of like new york washington dc society everyone thought this was weird which is why he and even at the lower age he's like 25 and she's 16 that's still considered a little weird in in the 19th century, but it was more believable. I don't think he could have aged himself down any further. You could own slaves, but uh, yeah, underage fucking mm. no. That, that does not. <laughs> we got to draw well. a line somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> that does not bode well for an assistant manager I had at a restaurant when I was alive. <laughs> oh man, he's a and two hundred years too late. <laughs> Three hundred. I don't. Know. I'm just getting the time scale. Just getting the time scale here. And it should be noted that not only did most people think this was weird, uh, but almost, uh, but that nobody in either family thought that this marriage was a good idea, and they all turned out to be right. Mm. Uh, 
Uh, at around the time of the wedding, Sickles had been trained as a lawyer, was made Corporation Counsel for New York City. This was due to his influence in Tammany Hall, in their political machine. Basically, it's his job to defend the city if it got sued, which I imagine happened a lot given the corruption of the Tammany Hall machine. Uh, Tammany is Hall he basically put, like a mob lawyer? A little bit, because um. Tammany Hall was pretty close to uh, like organized crime running a city. If you were in Tammany Hall's good graces, Tammany Hall was actually a really, really useful thing. Uh, oh, and, like and it would like, give out turkeys yeah, on Thanksgiving yeah, and it would and like make sure nobody fucked with your neighborhood? They, like they, the, the mob. Like, <laughs> uh, there's, there's, there's a quote from a Tammany Hall politician who wrote a book years and years after he you know, sort of left the, the game, so to speak. And he goes, when poor people came to me, he goes, I could have referred them to a relief society and that relief society being that this is mid-19th century Protestant America would have investigated their case to see if they were deserving. And he goes, by the time they would have figured it all out, they'd all starve to death. So he goes, I don't ask. I just uh, give them clothes, give them some quarters to buy food, and I just insist that they only vote Tammany's way at the next yeah. election, right? I like, mean, basically, they're sugar daddies. That's yeah. really what it is. Yeah. Like well, they're, they're like Jim like, directly Oli. Too dumb, probably. <laughs> But they were they they rigged elections. My favorite being that in like the month before an election, they would uh, get everyone in the in the city to grow out their beards, have them go vote once with a full beard, then shave off the beard, leave the mustache, vote a second time, then shave off the mustache, vote a third time. Mm. You know, uh, I feel okay. like that's how the GOP imagines uh, voter fraud. <laughs> I mean, yeah, <laughs> that's I, like, I, I think that's. Ooh, I'm just gonna show up with a new beard. Like, <laughs> yeah, they're like. <laughs> The geo, they're like the Democrats haven't changed since the 19th century, and we know that because we haven't changed since the 19th century. <laughs> so Tammany Hall politics are brutal. Apparently, Dan Sickles was thrown down a flight of stairs during a campaign rally, um, and Sickles was also granted the title of major in the New York State Militia. I say granted the title because he had no military training or experience, uh, but it did mean he could wear a fancy uniform. On occasion. Wait, but how much military experience is mob enforcer? I don't know. Oh, how no, yeah. he's mob lawyer, oh, not enforcer. Oh, yeah, no, mm. none. Zero, yeah. Okay. Yeah, he's he's mob lawyer, not enforcer. Mm. Uh, I've seen Carlo Jules way. I know what's Or Gangs of New York. <laughs> yeah, Gangs of that's what I was thinking of. Um, <laughs> uh, Sickles did not stay long in his role as Corporation Counsel for New York City because in 1855, Democratic President Franklin Pierce nominated Sickles to be the secretary to the U.S. legation in London. Sickles had no training or experience in foreign policy. Wait, and real quick, though, the British, they mm -hmm. were good at it? <laughs> they, they had a lot of experience in this sort of thing? Like, uh, I mean, you know, uh, I don't know. Uh, you're right. They, 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 they were kind of jerks to everyone, but... No, 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 not that they were jerks, just they had a well-established like, foreign office. Yeah. Like, a lot of experience. Yeah. God, we were... America was such, like, amateurs back then. It oh, we just... Were everything yeah because yeah. there were like 16 people uh and you needed more you had 18 jobs we were like the snowboarders at the olympics over the last 15 years like we don't like we're, we're involved we do this the same as you yeah yeah it's it's uh yeah he has no training in foreign policy uh or in, in, at all he doesn't speak any languages other than english but he is going to britain so that's fine um, he's never left the United States, as far as I know, before this. 
Isn't that like a lot of ambassadors now? They're like, you're a big donor. Like, let's give you an ambassadorship to like Great and, Britain or and like that's true. countries that don't matter. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> and undoubtedly, oh, yeah. undoubtedly, that is true today. The difference is, is that today you can instantaneously communicate with an ambassador. An ambassador today is a glorified messenger for the president mm. because you could just email the ambassador and be like, deliver this note. In the 1850s, you had to trust that the ambassador could exercise common sense and restraint because you couldn't instantaneously communicate. Now, it should be noted like, that Sickles no. is not in charge of the U.S. legation to Britain. He's just the secretary. He's one of the people on the on the team. The guy who's in charge uh, is... What was his typing speed? Since this is before the typewriter, it's zero. I, he did type it zero words okay. per minute. I, just, I feel like what's I, his quill skill? <laughs> I do feel I have to mention to the listeners. I knew there were no typewriters when I made that joke. I want to be right. so. Uh, he packs up for London, but he leaves his wife behind, who's pregnant. Hmm. Uh, well, yeah, but whatever. Like, th that was normal in the oh, 1800s. It, right? it, it would have been if yeah. it wasn't for the next couple of lines. Oh, I keep beating you to it. I'm sorry, Dr. Civics. While in London, he made two faux pas that we have to really uh, note here. First, he introduced a New York City prostitute who he brought with him instead of his wife. Her name was Ooh. Fanny White. Sex work. To Queen Victoria. <laughs> cut that. Cut that. We'll do it in post. <laughs> this podcast is super woke. That's yeah, cool. we're trying. We're trying. I mean, it's as woke as three middle-aged white dudes <laughs> talking about history can be, which is like not the greatest bar, you know. Also, just for the listener, two of these middle-aged white dudes are wearing plaid, and the third one is wearing a Captain America t-shirt, just mm -hmm. to, you know, fully round out. We're Thank not going to tell you which. We're going to leave you guessing. We're, we're, <laughs> we're in the middle-aged uh, middle white male uniform. Mm, the, these right. are, the, you know, dress, plaids, and uh, fatigue Captain America t-shirt. Mm, it's cold outside. What do you want? <laughs> uh, so he introduced this woman to uh, Queen Victoria. You, having her use the name of a New York political opponent as her alias. So, that's great. Wait, 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 wait. You said faux pas. That seems fucking genius to me. Uh, <laughs> Queen Victoria wasn't super psyched about it. Oh, well, right. Now, I, I, will, I will admit, none of this hurt Dan Sickles back home. Okay. Right. Did, it's did, just ridiculous that it happened. But he, he didn't get away with it, though. Like, she didn't buy it, is what you're saying? Or was she I like, oh, she, this is actually that person? I think, no, she she uh, she found out, and the actual ambassador to Great Britain was extremely embarrassed <laughs> that his one of his underlings introduced such a... Was he like, I'm Johnny Knoxville, and this is American Forest <laughs> Meanwhile, the U.S. ambassador to Britain wants to not go to war with the British Empire. Mm. And the British, Queen Victoria famously uh, really lacks about morals. It isn't that her name is an entire, uh, her name isn't an adjective for one of the most uptight periods yeah, of yeah. Western history right yeah that's the that's actually the time in which european men forgot the clit existed <laughs> like they knew and then they were forced to forget and then they had to relearn <laughs> so erased from history yeah. <laughs> so the second of these is that uh they were, the british had a fourth of july celebration 
uh, and invited. They, you know, they're trying to be nice. Oh. And Sickle shows up wearing his New York State militia uniform, which is, you know, okay, fine. Uh, and during the festivities, a toast was made to Queen Victoria because she's there and she's hosting the party and she's the queen. And so it makes sense. And he uh, stood up at the beginning. They were like, we're going to have a toast. He's standing. He's got his glass raised. And they're like, to Queen Victoria. And she can see him because he's not an unimportant person. <laughs> and he sits down while everyone else takes the toast. Oh, Just man. she sees this person who she knows is an American because he's wearing an American army uniform. She's met him and his special lady friend. And he just <laughs> flatly refuses to drink a toast to her. Oh. At the party she's hosting for his country. That's how you know royals are petty. <laughs> yeah. Like if I was at my wedding and somebody sat, I'd be like, I don't give a shit about my second cousin or whatever. Like I wouldn't have cared. You know? I, I only did it for the presents. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> right. all of this, like I said, all of this didn't hurt him back home. It played well in New York because when he comes home, he was elected first to the New York State Senate and then to the United States House of Representatives. Side note, he was censured by the New York State Senate for bringing Miss White, who we mentioned earlier, into the chambers of the New York State Senate. Wow. <laughs> Wait, what? He was she soliciting side piece into the, the state <laughs> so, assembly? So one of, one of the sources that I read said that that was part of, they think that might have been the reason he brought her along, was to like essentially use her to gain political favors. Uh, oh. Which tracks with everything hopefully that i've already told you mm -hmm. and will continue to track with the things i'm going to tell you wow. but a good reason yeah. to be censured favor I for think. a favor you know what I mean? um so really hey curring favor. hey you want a hand job we should go on the silver <laughs> we should go on the silver standard <laughs> oh oh yeah you want to you want to attack the barbary coast how about a little you know what i mean <laughs> I would actually be surprised if a lot of politics didn't work that way. Like, a, oh, mm. I mean, you know, on a grander scale. Yeah. I, I mean, bribery was super common mm. in the 19th century. No, but sexual bribery. And I'm sure it was. <laughs> I just, you know, uh, it doesn't wouldn't surprise me in the slightest. Okay. No, we just took a quick break because I had to take a shit. That's basically <laughs> what happened. So, for the listeners. For so, the listeners. so yeah. last time we, when we left, Dan Sickles had just been elected to Congress. Okay. Uh, and after his election, uh, Dan and Teresa, his wife, uh, moved to Washington, D.C., where they rented a large mansion off of Lafayette Square, across from the White House, oh, right. and generally just wined and dined the elite of the Capitol. It was noted that neither were terribly faithful. Oh, right? nice. Yeah, so neither of them were super okay with swinging? the vows. I think it would, no, we'll get to that point in a moment. They just both were really okay as long as they, neither of them, like, knew it, knew it. I feel like mm. that's, like, the perfect marriage. That's, uh, you know. <laughs> this person is speaking I, I, for themselves. Be, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there are two out of the three of the people at this table are married. I'll give, I'll give you guys a guess which one is not. <laughs> It was during this time that Teresa Sickles met Philip Barton Key, the son of Francis Scott Key, the author of The Star-Spangled Banner. Philip Barton Key was also the U.S. attorney for Washington, D.C. Mm. Teresa and Philip began an affair. Philip would arrive outside their house and wave a handkerchief as a uh, signal for Teresa to come out. And Dan found out. 
an anonymous letter was sent to him, giving him the details of the wait, affair. Wait, so she made, <laughs> she made, they did like the, whatever, what century are we in? We're in the 19th century? 19th century yeah, they 19th did the century. 19th century version of the sock on the doorknob, basically. <laughs> <laughs> a, a little, yeah, you know, they, they had a signal. And mm. I think, you know, Dan was not a terribly faithful husband. Mm. I think he kind of understood that Teresa was not a very faithful wife. But as long as he didn't have proof, mm. he could sort of compartmentalize it. Now he has proof. He has a letter laying out the entire affair. It was like the owner of the Lakers a few years ago or whatever, where he's like, I don't care if you fuck all these black guys. I just don't go everywhere so all my friends see make fun of me. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so apparently deciding that he could bring sex workers to London and Albany, but that Teresa could not have a dalliance with another man even older than himself, mm. Philip Barton Key was a year older than Dan Sickles. How old were they at this time? Uh, Sickles was born in 1819, and this is 1859, so he's like 40. Wow. Yeah. Uh, And uh, we want to talk about our first sponsor, uh, Blue Chew, everybody. Uh, He didn't need them, but you might. (laughs) So Sickles waited for Key to arrive at their house, seeing Key sitting on a bench and waving a handkerchief in Lafayette Park. Sickles stormed out of the house, crying, Key, you scoundrel, you have dishonored my home, you must die. He then proceeded to shoot him multiple times with a pistol. Mm. Key died a short time later. That's... Oh, did they have revolvers at the time? Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> you, you gotta be a real man, somebody to like muzzle those did, uh, something yeah, and do yeah. it a couple times. No, no, no. He's got a he's got a pistol. Uh. He's got a revolver. He and he unloads the whole thing into 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 Mr. Key. So Sickles, realizing that he just shot a man to death in Lafayette Square, which is a pretty busy area. Allegedly. Allegedly. Uh, surrendered himself to the U.S. <laughs> Attorney General that same day. Right? Again, this is a sign of how small the country is. He literally just went to the U.S. Attorney General's house and said, yeah, I, I shot the U.S. Attorney for Washington, D.C. I'm turning myself in. Okay. This is probably going to get me in trouble, but I'm starting to be a pretty big fan of this guy. <laughs> he introduced a hooker to Queen Victoria. That's so badass. I wish I could introduce a hooker to Queen Victoria. Unfortunately, I can't. On and, account uh, of Queen Victoria being super dead? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, well, and also the, the key guy is super dead, which mm-hmm. is cool because also a rich white man. Really, he can do no wrong as long as he's just killing rich white men. So um, Wait for he's, foreshadowing. He's, sent into, he's sent to jail to await trial. And while he's in jail, he was allowed to have visitors because he's a member of Congress. Mm. Remember, this is a sitting member of the U.S. Congress just shot the U.S. attorney for Washington, D.C. In, in broad daylight. Uh, his, his visitors were so numerous that he had to take over the warden's office to see them all. Mm. Like the warden had to give up his office so that Sickles would have a place to meet all of these people who are coming to visit him. See, they, they wanted favors? Like, no. He needed to he like needed, introduce a, them to the other sex workers? This isn't like, we need to keep business going. Like, <laughs> this is an outpouring of popular support. And, and um, I'm on the side of the people. <laughs> uh, he, these, in, these visitors included other members of the House and the U.S. Senate. He even received, received a note from President, I am the worst ever Buchanan. I, I'm a, I do not like James wow, Buchanan. Wow, is that an official title? That's, that's my official title. Dr. For Civic says so, so I feel like we kind of <laughs> have to agree. That's my, that's my name for, uh, for James Buchanan. James, I am the worst President Buchanan. 
Jackson? Worst. No, no. Again, we, we, I think we've had this conversation another time, mm-hmm. so the podcast mm-hmm. listeners haven't heard of it. In a future, in a future episode, <laughs> we boringly talk about who's worst. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, the problem is shit. We're gonna edit that out and post. <laughs> Doctor Civics, the woat, the the worst of all time. Uh, like, I would, I would, I would say this. We we've had it. We've had a conversation. Andrew Jackson's a terrible person, mm-hmm. but isn't bad at being president. Right. Which is different. James Buchanan was bad at being president. Mm. He watched eight states secede from the Union and did nothing. Cool, 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 cool. Stalin was great at ruling the Soviet Union. He was really good at it. But I would argue he was uh, worse than Gorbachev. (laughs) No one's seceding under Stalin. You're right. But that's a bad thing. (laughs) So, anyway... um, he received a, a note from President Buchanan, a note of support. Sickles is formally charged with murder. So we mm. talked a little bit about this, but I want to gather your thoughts now. What are your thoughts on uh, Sickles? How do you think this trial is going to go? Uh, I just, you know. I mean, if he's able to, you know, distribute favors uh, from his horde of sex workers. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, might like, it might be a network. Little, we'll, we'll say network like, instead of a horde. <laughs> like as if they're coming over the hill just on horses, just ready to sex work it up. <laughs> imagine him walking into the court with like his entourage of sex workers. <laughs> just like, like pointing at sex workers and then pointing at congressmen like one for you and one for you. <laughs> Innocent. <laughs> clunk, clunk. I mean, he's just Congress's pimp, I guess. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's really. Hey, and as they say, congressional pimping ain't easy. Cue <laughs> <laughs> like, the fifty cent song. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so uh, you're thinking? Do you think this trial is going to be? What do you think the trial is going to be like? Like, if you had to place bets on, like, what's the atmosphere of the trial going to be like? Well, stupid. Raucous. <laughs> raucous. Raucous and stupid. I think that's going to rock the house. I would imagine, first of all, the jury's not exactly untouchable here. All right. Yeah. Big yeah, big like, yeah Dr. He, Civics. Yeah. All right. Let's make another one. I'm going to do another quick one. Um, just... Just based on my general knowledge of history, the judge probably wasn't super trustworthy. <laughs> oh, he I shrug. All right, There's the judge a lot is 50-50. of glad handing going yeah, on. Yeah, There's... the judge. He tried so, to do his best. I, 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 I'm guessing they're all white, um, right? I mean, is by that, law, that... by law, in, in the District <laughs> of Columbia, and <laughs> throw yeah, it out there. Yeah. That, that's probably. I mean, that that's a that's a that's a softball right down the center. <laughs> so, should that be our first like uh, like sound clip drop? Should just be being like, guess they're all white, and I'll just press it, and it'll be so many things we talk about in the future. Oh, I guess they're all white. Oh, shit. So uh, surprisingly, the trial was a zoo. Uh, Sickles hired prominent Democratic lawyers to represent him, including his future big boss Edwin Stanton. Uh, so mm. Sickles serves in the Civil War. Uh, and Stanton would be Secretary of War from 1862 oh. to 1868. So uh, his ultimate boss during the Civil War is uh, is one of his lawyers. Another of his lawyers was a big shot Tammany lawyer, right? So bring calling in those favors from Tammany Hall. And what would you before we go any further? Sorry, what would you say was a Tammany lawyer's number one skill? Uh, 
line, line really, yep, yep, yep. really well, affected. But all, and different than all lawyers. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, I would say, I would say uh, uh, maybe then if I have to, righteous obfuscation. Righteous obfuscation. Well, Some, term. Yeah, somebody's uh, bringing out the LSAT yeah. vocab here. <laughs> <Jesus>. <laughs> no, I think you know, that the, main, the main point is, is Tammany are the law. Right. They're, they're not, they can't, like we talked about them being like organized crime earlier. Well, organized crime don't think of themselves as within the law. Tammany thinks of themselves within the law. So nothing they do is illegal. Because they accuse them of illegality is just so offensive. And they're going to, they're going to spin a war, they're going to spin a whirlwind of words. You'll be very confused by all of them. And at the end, you'll have no <laughs> choice but to be like, well, I guess they didn't do anything wrong. Which is n exactly nothing like any recent presidents we've had. No, just, no just I don't really. Talk a lot, hoping that eventually you tire yourself out no. trying to wade through the word salad. Zero, zero bells got rung in my mind. Good. Yeah, it didn't. Um, and just for good measure, just for good measure, he's got this all-star lawyer defense team. Just for good measure, President Buchanan in front of the jury. So the jury is in the jury box. He's there. President Buchanan shows up, comes over to Dan Sickles, shakes his hand, and basically is like signaling to the jury, I think this guy's real great. And then leaves. <laughs> That was it's like, like, what do you give him a wink? <laughs> and I, and again, he shot a man in broad daylight in Lafayette Square. Okay, the glove don't fit. Um, yeah, I was gonna say, if I, the sheepskin condom don't fit, you must acquit. That's, I think that's what they. It used was that. That was like the the dream team essentially of like OJ's. <laughs> yeah. So all all of this is implying that the president of the United States is on the side of the defense. Mm. You are here to fix the price of the marriage bed, roared one of Sickles' lawyers. Stanton told the jury that Teresa's infidelity had driven Sickles temporarily insane, and thus he could not be held accountable for his actions. Wait, had they, okay, because I remember somewhere deep in my uh, adult brains, uh, is that the first successful insanity defense? Yeah, my man Sickles, <laughs> dig it outside the box. <laughs> Daniel had gotten Teresa to confess to the whole affair in graphic detail. And when the confession was ruled inadmissible, Sickles and his team leaked it to the press. Mm. One Washington paper trumpeted Sickles as a hero who had saved, quote, all of the ladies of Washington from this rogue name key. The combination of rhetoric and politicking and drama brought about a not guilty verdict on the grounds of temporary insanity, mm. the first such result in American history. <laughs> One final piece about the key murder drama is that Sickles remained in Congress. He'd been reelected in 1858. This happened in 1859. He'll, he'll be up for reelection the next year. He remained in Congress, but he and Teresa were ostracized from Washington society, not because Sickles had gunned down the son of an American hero in broad daylight, but because he had forgiven his wayward wife and not divorced her. Mm. Fortunately for Sickles, the nation was on the brink of civil war, the perfect opportunity for him to retrieve his battered reputation. Mm. And just, I'm going to stop here, but I have one last question. Sure. Given what we've talked about so far, do we want to place bets on how well he does as a military officer? Mm. Mm. I, I, I mean, this is an out-of-the-box thinker during a time when everyone's like, stand in the line and fire at each other with rifles. <laughs> so honestly, I might give him the, you know, the dark horse on this one. He might actually do okay. You know, uh, I mean, 
he did well with that pistol. So that's true. Uh, <laughs> that's true. Six <laughs> successful shots directly. <laughs> Center mass so, at five yards. I mean, he's definitely going to be great on the battlefield. Oh uh, man, as long as he can get close. <laughs> Center mass execution style. Yeah. Center mass at five yards is basically like cannons at a hundred, right? Like is that basically kind of like you know? I. Just to be clear, listeners, I don't know shit about using cannons. Let's just be clear. I don't know the physics, the gunpowder. Uh, I mean, but, you know, I've, I've studied it a bit. And at least Civil War cannons, the, the shortest range ones were good at 1,500 yards. So, you know, 100 yards, you shouldn't miss anything. Oh, okay. Cool. <laughs> I mean, what, like Bull Run? Like people came out and like picnicked basically to watch it like... Yeah. You know, they were expecting, like, you know, it's like almost like an old-fashioned, you know, civil reenactment or something. And then suddenly more people died in a day than had died in the entire American oh. Revolution. So then they were like, oh, no. <laughs> They're like, oh, this might be a problem. Yeah. Is it the last day? Like, <laughs> they were expecting some suspiciously overweight people in uniforms. <laughs> Fire smoke at each other pointlessly and then go home. Apparently, what they were expecting. There was a there was a Civil War historian that I was listening to who was talking about that point about the size, the average size of Civil War reenactors, which he said was doubly ironic because through most of the Civil War, the Confederate Army was very malnourished, not ever to the point of starvation. Mm. Like that, that was never really a thing. But there was a period of time where the Army of Northern Virginia, which is Robert E. Lee's army, their daily ration, the daily ration of a soldier, is one pound uncooked of bacon mm. and, like, eight ounces of cornmeal. And that's it. Why uncooked? Because, like, because they had to cook it. They were responsible for cooking it themselves. Oh, so I want you to think about it. It's a pound uh, of bacon, but it's the uncooked weight is a pound. So oh, you have to cook it down. You basically get, like, four strips of bacon and eight ounces, a pint of cornmeal, a pint of cornmeal. And that was it, that's all they're on. He you goes, can do what I people do. do love bacon though. Yeah. <laughs> you, you, know, you can do what I do, where you empty all the bacon grease into a glass and just slam it. No, <laughs> what, what, apparently, <laughs> it's apparently what they it's would, keto. Apparently what they would do. Do they wrap it? No, they would They would cook the bacon. Uh, and, and this is very fatty bacon. They're not getting like lean bacon. So they've got lots of bacon fat. And Southern they would, bacon. They would take the cornmeal, pour it into the bacon fat and mix it up to make like a slurry, like a sludge. Mm. And then you would wrap that around the ramrod of a bayonet and put it into a fire to oh. cook. So you would have this like weird, you'd have bad bacon uh, with chicory coffee, uh, which is not real coffee and has no caffeine, so why bother? And, uh, and some very disgusting cornbread. Uh, but basically, this historian goes, there were no overweight Confederate soldiers. Mm. You would be hard-pressed to find a fat Confederate soldier. Mm. Anyway. Um, and now, do, and do now there's no underweight well. Confederate <laughs> soldiers. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you just keep turning. <laughs> they don't reenact those meals, I guess. No, they do not. They don't. Well, they do, but 15 times. <laughs> Is that a Cracker Barrel special? Yeah. <laughs> 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 okay. Well, have, you, have you gone to the Cracker Barrel and uh, gotten the Civil War soldier? Oh, I got fucking cool. <laughs> I mean, that's the that's the end of what I was going to say. Part two: The Peach Orchard.
The Peach Orchard. The Peach Orchard. It becomes relevant later. Oh, fair enough. Okay. When the first shell struck Fort Sumter on April 12, 1861, the entire United States Army numbered about 15,000 men. These men were scattered around the western frontier and in coastal forts. What were they doing on the western frontier? Uh, they were, they <laughs> all, were all systematic. Good were, no, yeah, all good stuff. They were having parties so with the Indians. <laughs> they definitely weren't fighting uh, wars of extermination. No. Yeah, the Comanche no, and right, Apache yeah. and so on. Just to be clear, we feel real bad about that collectively if anyone's listening. We Circle do. on the wagon over yeah. here. But this is a comedy podcast, so moving on. <laughs> so the largest field army the United States had ever fielded uh, was the one commanded by George Washington at the Battle of New York in 1776. The greatest strategy, strategist in American history to that point was Winfield Scott, who had commanded about 12,000 men in his campaign from Veracruz to Mexico City during the Mexican War. I state these numbers to bring home the fact that no American alive in 1861 had commanded more than 12,000 men at one time, and, the most any, and most had never commanded more than 1,000. By the end of the conflict, the Union put over 2 million men into uniform and had about 550,000 men ready for battle. The Confederacy put somewhere between 750,000 and 900,000 men into uniform with a highest known strength of about 300,000 at any one time. The armies of both the United States and the Confederacy would have to expand dramatically to meet the challenges posed by the American Civil War. I'm going to assume this had a sort of a yakety sax sort of feel to it. it. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Into this gap, Ad this hoc. yakety sax gap. <laughs> I miss, I'm sorry to side on this, but I miss America when it was just bad at everything. Like, we were just new and we didn't give a shit about anything. <laughs> like, throw it together. Yeah, all of our institutions were just like scotch tape and like children's daycare <laughs> cardboard. And, like, it also led to civil war. Yeah, yeah well, uh, Into this gap. In came. that, that being said though, we got to fuck up the worst part of the country, so. Whoa! Hey, and we've been canceled in South Carolina. Oh, man. Oh, no. Too small. <laughs> <laughs> too small for a republic, too large for an insane asylum. Okay. <laughs> Into this gap came the so-called political general. At the time of the Civil War, there was no conscription, though both sides introduced that by the end of the conflict. And so units were raised by volunteers from the states. Uh, and this had been the way the United States had raised troops in the Revolutionary War and in the War of 1812 and in the War with Mexico. And basically, the United States' political philosophy at the time was if the country is at war, the, the government goes person to person and goes, do your duty, join the army. And you were totally within your liberty to go, go to hell, I don't want to. And the government will go, okay, move on to the next guy. Just treat them like Mormons at your doorstep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you heard about the most recent geopolitical conflict. Would you like to join? Also, the United States Army had to put down Mormons. Anyway. <laughs> Thus. Did they have to or did they want to? <laughs> oh, they was definitely want to. There's very weird Republican Party. I, I knew a lot of Mormons growing up. Mm -hmm. uh, so my, my experience of Mormons is a bunch of my friends in high school were mm -hmm. Mormon. And so these were like some of the most delightful people I ever met. Mm -hmm. And so there's very weird, for me, very weird Republican political rhetoric in the 1850s talking about crushing the twin barbarisms of slavery and polygamy. Mm. Like they were equating Mormon polygamy with Southern slaveholding, which, again, not a huge fan of polygamy, mm -hmm. but 
If I had to like list those things. <laughs> You're like, one of those is like a, a solid 25 <laughs> degrees below yeah. the other one. Yeah. Again, you know. Uh, uh, yeah, on the hierarchy of things. Yeah. Uh, Plus, I'm going to go on a big uh, limb here and say that marriage at the time was a little close to slavery. Like, maybe they're actually closer than we think. But, but, but no, no political party was saying that. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, so thus, regiments, because they're raised by the states, regiments were identified by a number in a state. So you'd have the 20th Maine, the 6th Wisconsin, the 16th Mississippi, 43rd Virginia. Since the states were, since the states raised the regiment, and a regiment has about 1,000 men at the beginning of the war, the state governors appointed the colonels of these regiments, which meant that a political general was an officer who owed their rank not to some military experience or training, but rather to their political connections and ability to raise soldiers. Basically, if you could raise soldiers, if you could go to the governor of your state and be like, I raised 4,000 men, then you got to be commissioned a colonel. That's like one a pyramid of scheme, yeah. essentially. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. MLM, boy. M- Dude, I'm MLM. Like, a military multi-level marketing <laughs> like, scheme. I know. I, 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 I have downstream distributors who are going to carry <laughs> the rifles into battle. Uh, <laughs> you need cannon fodder? I have got it in spades, yo. <laughs> I feel like a, like a political officer is like that dumb guy in, in uh, Die Hard. In the beginning, where he's like, if I can negotiate with the Japanese, <laughs> I can negotiate with terrorists. And then they just shoot him in his dumb yeah. fucking face. <laughs> so, so these men... for doing cocaine. <laughs> that means Civil, Civil War Generals, right? Well, Civil War card. Generals? They probably do yeah. cocaine, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They no. Well, anyway. Uh, <laughs> these men... These <laughs> shouldn't be shooting up like, from those, like yeah, missing lucky. limbs or whatever. <laughs> lucky. <laughs> Jealous. <laughs> it's like it's like the war that bred like a generation of morphine addicts. Like, if if you got cocaine for being a, a being a Civil War officer, every comic we know would be a Civil War. <laughs> <laughs> how good are you? How good are you? Dude, I mean, that's how they got people. Yeah, yeah, that, that's yeah. the best way to organize a militia. <laughs> <laughs> they will organize so fast. <laughs> What? We got that. We got that shit there. You have a, you do have Adam a very Civil War general esque beard. Yes. And I think if you tried other Adam, mm. you could do it. <laughs> yeah. And at the very least, you could do the the, the burn side. You could shave off mm. the bottom and do the sideburns, the mustache combo. Okay, so the burn side because it goes right. It goes from your mm-hmm. like like sideburn yeah. down into your mustache. Into ah, see, I can't do that. Yeah, well, I would do I would do just the big sideburns under the chin. Yeah, the mutton chops. Yeah, I call that the pussy eater. Because <laughs> <laughs> you're just none of that hair gets in the way of what you gotta do, but you still got a manly beard. You know what I mean? It's really best of both worlds. So on that note, these men. <laughs> Manly enough for my woman. Yeah. Manly this? enough for my woman, but free of hair enough for that puss. <laughs> These men existed on both sides of the war, the political generals, and they were of an inconsistent quality. Uh, very often they were good at raising men. They were very often physically brave. Uh, they were decent administrators. And some even were able to come to a sort of intuitive understanding of tactics and strategy. But they were almost nearly impossible to work with. Had they, they played Total War? No. Oh, okay. Just making sure. Because that really helps. It probably does. They tended to be underhanded. They tended to be insubordinate and impetuous. Dan Sickles checks 
all of these boxes. Yay, Dan Sickles! Every single uh, one of these boxes. We're going back to yeah. <laughs> Sickles started the war by helping to raise four regiments. This would be nearly 4,000 men from around New York City. These regiments, the 70th, the 72nd, 73rd, and 74th New York Infantry, formed the Excelsior Brigade. And Sickles... <laughs> we have to do it. Excelsior! Is that what they cheered in the battle? Just like, uh, they might have. But again, they had like a, a fucking like capes and shit. <laughs> Can you imagine if that's the last thing you said before you got fucking grape shot into death? <laughs> it's so tall. It's so sad. Uh, so sad. So Sickles was made colonel of the 70th New York. Uh, these men would have started out as 90-day enlistments at the beginning of the war, but after Bull Run would have re-enlisted for three years. In September 1861, Sickles took over the entire Excelsior Brigade and was promoted to Brigadier General. He's now a one-star general. He's never seen combat. He has no military training or experience. He's now in charge of about three to 4,000 men. The Excelsior Brigade was attached to a, man, uh, to a division under the, man, under the command of a man named Major General Joseph Hooker. <laughs> oh, wow. Whoa. You guys are going to love Joe Hooker. This Joe Hooker. Yeah. I mean, it's, I, I Sickles him. has literally surrounded himself <laughs> with sex workers, which, another word for that in the past. I'm just putting two and two together here, folks. You, you, you both are going to love Joe Hooker. Oh, nice. Joe oh. Hooker was the only West Pointer who could stand Dan Sickles. Oh, nice. Uh, probably because they were both hard-drinking, hard-fighting womanizers. Woo! Yeah. Uh, wait, I wooed everything except womanizer. I'm a married man. I didn't woo womanizer. The other stuff was cool. Not that one. I, just, I wooed too soon. Uh, Charles Francis Adams, who I think is John Adams' grandson, uh, referred to Joe Hooker's uh, headquarters being somewhere between a bar and a brothel mm. in terms of its atmosphere. Didn't most brothels have bars in them? Yeah, but I think this is... <laughs> so it's kind of like... So like basically uh, brought his... Like, Charles Francis Adams is a uh, is an uh, upper-class New England, Massachusetts Puritan. I don't think he ever went into a bar or a brothel. Uh, so he's probably confused on how they work. Oh, that's fair. So Sickles brought his sex worker entourage on the road. Is that, <laughs> is that really what happened? Like, <laughs> yeah. Dude, they got... The guy was like, I bet they give him so many kisses on the cheek. <laughs> dude, they've been through so much dude, <laughs> the past 30 oh years. Oh, my God. Who would ever pay a cuddle? <laughs> <laughs> Sickles would be absent from the Army on multiple occasions to lobby Congress for promotion or go back to New York to raise more men. At one point, Congress refused to promote him to Major General, Two-Star General. Uh, so he went to Washington and just yelled at them until he, they gave him his commission. Um, but quick, quick question. So yeah. he raised his militia. Was one of the incentives the... The entourage? Yeah. In all seriousness, in 1861, uh, if you had gone into New York and into New York City or into any northern city and gone, hey, the South wants to leave the United States, wants to leave the Union, you would have to turn away the number of, of American men who would be like, we're going to go down there and we're going to teach them that they can't do that. And also, there's hookers, so. <laughs> <laughs> now, by, 18, by 1863, you had to be like, hey, they can't leave the Union. And most people are like, but maybe they can. And so the North has to start being like, and we'll pay you $100 uh -huh. if you join up. And you have to remember that a, that a skilled laborer makes like $30 a month. So if you're paid $100, $150 in cash on signing, 
That's like half a year, a third to a half of a year's wages all at once. And soldiers in the army are paid like 13 or $16 a month. So it's, it's but it, at the beginning of the war, I don't think Sickles, and Sickles is a charismatic guy. So the, He's a guy who's good at giving his speech. I don't think he had any trouble raising 4,000 men. I don't think he had to bribe them with, with I just think workers. it's really funny if you went to the strip club with a month's wages and it was $14. You could make it rain for seven seconds. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, he's able to raise a 4,000-man army? Jesus. I mean, I mean, he's the man, the myth, the mystery so far, other than the womanizing. So, uh, <laughs> I'm just being very clear, other than that. So, but, so he, he, uh, he's absent from the army a couple of times, but when he is in combat, as during the Seven Days Battle in 1862, he is, phys- he is a physically brave, hard-fighting officer. And so although Sickles missed the fighting at Antietam, the, the unit he is a part of, the Third Corps, was defending Washington, and at Fredericksburg, where they were in reserve and never put into battle, it is not because Sickles was a coward. I really, I really want to drive that home. In my opinion, I, I think I'm gathering that you two find him hilarious. I find him infuriating and annoying. He has many f- vices, in my opinion. Cowardice isn't one of them. Oh, I, I don't, I don't okay. think that that's true. All the best people in history have vices like that. Dude, uh, yeah, Rasmus, his vices are yeah. way, way outweighing any of his virtues. That's mm. the that's the other problem. Wait, 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 wait. But yeah. did he kill Confederates? Badly. Oh, shit. <laughs> this, is, this, is, this is the problem. <laughs> Only he would have been uh, a bitch hitter on the. Uh, so damn. the friendship with Hooker. Uh, so by the end of 1862, Sickles is now commanding a division in Sickle in Hooker's Third Corps. Now let's. Uh, uh, we yep. know. Uh, everyone here knows. But let's remind the listeners, uh, what's a division? So a division is going to be, so remember I said a regiment is a thousand men. Mm-hmm. If you put four or five regiments together, you have a brigade. You, you put two or more brigades together, you get a division. Now, during the Civil War, they didn't replace losses. If a guy died, they didn't bring in a new guy. They just, they bleed regiments down to zero and they'd send them all home and they just raise another thousand men. Because again, the state governor gets to appoint the colonel. Mm-hmm. So there's no political incentive. To replace losses. Oh. The political incentive is raise a new regiment because Bob needs a job. Wait, wait. But is the political incentive to, like, let your soldiers die, go back, and then raise another regiment? No, like, no, no, no. <laughs> no I, it's just that it was – it's also – part of it is the federal government is so slap, is so shoddy in its its organization. I don't think they could have organized a replacement system. Oh, that's, that's, the other, that's the other part of this. Oh. That's so um, weird that the federal government would be like inefficient and shoddy at their job. That's so <laughs> Jesus. So I guess some things do change. <laughs> so, so when Sickles, when I say, but when I say Sickles is commanding a division in 1862, 1863, that probably means he's commanding somewhere between five and ten thousand men. Okay, so he's commanding about five to ten thousand men now. And twenty thousand sex workers. <laughs> <laughs> from his 20,000 so the friendship with hooker bore fruit in the first part uh bore fruit in the first part of 1863 when hooker was promoted from command of the third corps to the top spot in the army of the potomac and the army of the potomac is the principal union field army in the eastern theater this is like this is the varsity yeah. of the union army mm, the army of the potomac yeah. hooker is now in charge of the whole thing there goes my hero. <laughs> it's like that. It's yeah. like that. All right. Since there had to be a reshuffle of commanders, and since Sickles and Hooker were friends, Hooker promoted Sickles to command the Third Corps, the only non-West Pointer to hold such a command in the Army of the Potomac. There were non-West Pointers who commanded similar-sized units in other armies, but he, uh, the Army of the Potomac is a West Point show, 
and everyone else in the army hates Sickles because mm. he's not part of he's not right. part of that. Not part everyone of that else crew. in the army or everyone else in the army leadership. The army leadership. Because oh, okay. those because yeah, yeah. Dan Sickles' men also loved him. They yeah, did. Yeah. He was he was a hard fighting, hard drinking kind of guy. That's what uh, I'm talking and, about. And he's a good politician, uh, but. Uh, he, the, the other, he, but he's impossible to work with. This is, I, he is not a team player. Yeah. So, so we're supposed to hate him because all the other rich white men don't like him either. <laughs> this is just points in his yeah, head. Uh, yeah. So I feel like something's going to happen. He's like, well, and then he shot 15 children. Like, oh, fuck. Back the wrong horse. <laughs> so Sickles would command the third corps in only two battles and his record was to be mixed. The first of these battles was the absolutely disastrous Battle of Chancellorsville, where, ironically, he did really well. This battle, fought in May of 1863, was the greatest victory Robert E. Lee and his Army of Northern Virginia ever won. Uh, Lee and his army, outnumbered nearly two to one by Hooker's Army of the Potomac, nevertheless attacked, flanked, and routed the Union Army. So not only, Hooker's got like 130,000 men. Lee's got about 60, 65,000 men. And Lee looks at that and goes, I'm gonna attack. And not only am I going to attack, I'm going to hit them on both ends at once, which means I have to split my army in half, and I'm going to make them run away. And it happens. It's the, like the worst disaster in mm. the Union Army faces yeah. in the war. Very Hannibal-esque. It is. Mm. It is very Hannibal-esque. Isn't that where Stonewall dies? It is where Stonewall dies. So it's a kind of Pyrrhic victory, right? Stonewall Jackson dies being shot by his own men because that that... Just how it goes sometimes, I yeah. guess. Because whoops. Just, just, yeah. Yeah. yeah, actually, in the military tribunal afterwards, uh, the the cause of death for Stonewall Jackson was whoops. Uh, <laughs> so it was listed as whoops, addendum A, my bad. <laughs> so during this engagement, Sickles fought bravely and even held a piece of good high ground before being ordered off of it by Hooker. Now, once the Third Corps had abandoned this ground, the rebels took it, loaded it up with artillery, and just poured fire into retreating Union troops. And this had a profound effect on Sickles. The idea that if you give up good high ground, the Confederates are going to load it up with guns, and they are going to just make it rain steel. If you were not a political officer, would you just have kind of already knew that? No, he, this isn't. He was ordered off of it. No, no, no. Right, right. So, like, he, I think is is this is the first time he's seen this effect uh, at, at, at scale, uh, right? Um, and we'll get to that in a minute. So, the aftermath of the Battle of Chancellorsville was that Stonewall Jackson's dead, but Robert E. Lee decides to invade Pennsylvania. So he follows this up with an invasion of Pennsylvania, and Joe Hooker is removed as commander of the Army of the Potomac because he just shit the bed. No. He is replaced by George Gordon Meade. The man in the army who hated Dan Sickles the most. George Gordon Meade's nickname was the, that goggle-eyed snapping turtle, which is not a very good nickname, but it does do a good job <laughs> just of describing. A, just a quick aside for the listeners who aren't like maybe as familiar with like terminology at, a, at an earlier period. When somebody gets called a scoundrel in like 1840 or whatever, that means goddamn big, motherfucker. Big like deal. that's what that means, right? Like if, a snapping turtle? He was he was an angry man. George wait, wait, Gordon Meade had like you know, it, again? it was a that damn goggle-eyed snapping turtle. <laughs> damn damn goggle-eyed. He has he, he's got his eyes are weird. If you yeah. if you put a if you google a picture of George Gordon Meade, he's got these kind of big bags mm. under his eyes. He was not a pleasant fellow. He was an engineer by 
trade, like by training. He'd graduated really it, at West Point at the time. If you graduated at the top of your class, they put you in the engineers. Mm. So if anyone, uh, any of the, if you're ever reading about the Civil War and you're like this person was trained as an engineer, they're a very intelligent person in an engineering curriculum so they oh so that means that they they think that they're smart about literally everything else it's not, it's not just that they they tend to view things as engineers mm. and so he's not dash and vigor and elon right he's not going around you know bringing, bean counter yeah basically but, but competent very competent oh, yeah. mead's good at his job but again we have to compare this with dan sickles this is a huge personality difference so <laughs> mead Mead is a bit like, uh, we'll say like an Obama, mm-hmm. like a like intellectual. Yeah. We're gonna like break down this problem, blah mm-hmm. blah blah, and, and then kind of cautious while doing yeah. it. Yeah. And Sickles is much more of a Trump. Oh, absolutely. Right? Of just like, and they this... hate each other no. because of yeah, it. Well. Uh, Sickles thinks that Mead is a is a weakling mm. uh, and a coward, and Mead thinks that Sickles is an idiot, and mm. so that's going in. So the Army of Northern Virginia and the Army of the Potomac clashed outside of the small town of Gettysburg, Pennsylvania on July 1st, 1863 in what's called a meeting engagement. They didn't mean to run into each other. They just do. And the big battle forms. And Meade and Lee, neither of whom are there, are being told there's a battle going on. And they tell all of their commanders, get here just as fast as you can. Everyone move to this point. So Sickles arrives around midnight between the 1st and 2nd of July. He moves his corps really quickly. He moves them like 30 miles in a day. So... These That's men, hard to do at night, right? Well, like, just, at the time. I want you to think about they marched 30 miles in a day carrying 60 pounds of gear Jesus. in a 90-degree Pennsylvania Jesus. summer. <laughs> also, <laughs> also <laughs> to be clear to listener, when I say I could do that, I am uh, 230 pounds, <laughs> and I'm a software developer, so you draw your own conclusions. Uh, <laughs> So I just, I, I really quickly, and, and I realize this is maybe the worst possible format for what I'm about to do, but I would really like to describe the geography of Gettysburg, <laughs> which I realize in an audio format doesn't seem all Quick that Quick message to the listeners, if you'd like to uh, go to the fridge for a little while. <laughs> <laughs> maybe pull up a map. I yeah, don't know. Yeah. So the area around it is dominated by a series of ridges that run more or less north to south, and they, they are in parallel to one another. So on the first day, the Confederates take a series of ridges called McPherson's Ridge and Seminary Ridge, and the Union Army ends up on a series of hills that basically form a fishhook. And one of those places is called Cemetery Ridge. Okay, so I'm, I'm shortening it up as much as I can. So this is where the Union Army is going to spend the next two days. So Sickles and his third corps arrive, and Meade goes, okay, this is what I want you to do. We have this ridge that we're on. The second corps, under the best guy I got, Winfield Scott Hancock, they're already on this ridge. I want you to find him. I want you to put your right flank at his left flank, and I want you to extend your line down to this tiny little hill over here. That's what I want you to do. That's all you have to do. Okay. And this gives Meade two options. He's either got a really good place to defend from if Lee attacks, or he's got a good place to spring to attack. So Sickles gets his corps into position. And what he notices is, is that the road that runs in between Seminary Ridge and Cemetery Ridge, the Emmitsburg Road, is slightly higher than Cemetery Ridge by like 10 feet. It's not a huge amount. It's not a huge amount, but it is higher ground in front of him. Mm-hmm. And he remembered what happened at Chancellorsville when he let the Confederates have high ground in front of him. So... Under his own initiative, and without informing Meade, moved his entire corps, about 10,000 men, out of line and up to the Emmitsburg Road. 
and situated them around a wheat field, a peach orchard, and a, a place, a pile of rocks with a very ominous name of Devil's Den. Mm. Well, I, I love how you say Devil's Den is the ominous name, as we've already talked about Cemetery Ridge. That's probably, <laughs> that's a little more ominous to me. Yeah. It, oh, they were actually right next to Place You Will Definitely Die Valley. <laughs> and the, this is where your blood will go river. Yeah, it's like Mass Murder Gully. Like. <laughs> Uh, there are some places around here that get named afterwards, and one of the places on this battlefield is literally called the Slaughter Pen now. Like, if you go visit Gettysburg, there's, like, a marker that's like, this is huh. the Slaughter Pen. I hope there's, like, a road. Mm-hmm. Like, there's a very nice family of five that are just like, yeah, yeah, 1611 Slaughter Pen Road. <laughs> oh, no, none of the roads are <laughs> yeah. He can't miss it. <laughs> <laughs> All of this is around 2 p.m. What... Sickles doesn't know is that General James Longstreet, Confederate general, has moved is moving nearly 30,000 men into a position to attack exactly this point. So he doesn't know that that's going to happen. At around 3 p.m., Meade called a meeting of all of his corps commanders, which Sickles said he could not attend because he was busy, busy disobeying the orders of his commanding general. The chief engineer of the army, a man named Governor uh, General Governor Warren. Governor is his first name. It's a very weird first name. Oh, no, it's not. Not for the... Like, now Everyone like, else is Dan and John and George, and this guy's name is Governor. Yeah, but like back <laughs> in the time, they named people horse back then. Like it's a the horse. Yeah, yeah, yeah they yeah, named yeah, people yeah, horse yeah. and fucking Zalman and she. I can't. Again, all of the people I've mentioned in this in this episode so far are Philip mm-hmm. and R- Robert and. George and Joe and Dan. Oh. Like, I mean, this is the guy with the weirdest name we've talked about. All right, fair is this enough. like aspirational name? Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like those Southern dudes who always call themselves Colonel. <laughs> like, there's like 15 times more colonels in the South than they're in the actual military because they were just said, oh, I own a chain of 15 restaurants in Louisiana. Call me Colonel. You know, it's like a bit like that. So, uh, <laughs> Governor Ward see, saw the position Sickles is moving into, thinks it's a bad idea, but doesn't have the rank to tell him to not do it. Mm. He's, Sickles outranks him. So instead he goes to Meade and tells him, by the way, 10,000 of your soldiers are now in a, in a different position. Meade, unable to believe that anyone would be this stupid, rode out to Sickles to see what was going on. When he got there, he must have been horrified. By moving his corps out to the peach orchard, the wheat field, and Devil's Den, Sickles managed to make three blunders at the same time. First, his force was not physically large enough to hold the line he now made for himself. He physically did not have enough men to create a line. Um, even yeah. if it was like a hands across America situation. <laughs> no, nope, not like over, over, come over, like. Red Rover, Red Rover, send James Longstreet right over. Red Rover, Red Rover, send uh, artillery shells on over. Second. That will really break a Red Rover chain if anyone's wondering artillery shells. Canister? Yeah. This podcast brought to you by Raytheon. (laughs) Second, he was now out of contact with any other portion of the army. He physically wasn't attached to any other portion of the army. Since he was over a half a mile from the second corps, those people he was supposed to be next to, and the 5th Corps, who was supposed to be on his left, hadn't yet gotten there. Thirdly, the position was a salient, and so was able to be attacked from three sides, and was easily within artillery range of Seminary Ridge. Oh, nice. The thing he wanted to avoid, being hit with artillery, he now mm-hmm. is in a very open... There's no cover. If you ever go to Gettysburg and you go out to the Peach Orchard and the Wheatfield, what you'll notice is it's very flat, 
and there's nowhere to hide. Yeah, you kind of need the highest ground. Yes. Right? Like if you or, have the second highest ground, it's not the good enough highest ground. Or, or you know, basically there are historians who go, okay, the position he originally held is lower than the Emmitsburg Road. But the positions to his right and left are much higher than the Emmitsburg Road. So, so they're covered it, on their flank. Exactly. So if the Confederates had come up and put guns there, the guns on Cemetery Ridge and the guns on Little Round Top would have silenced them really quickly because they're within range. And they're, that, that openness, I'm telling you, works both ways. Right? It's not just one side. So Sickles now asked if he should move his corps back to their original positions when Meade is like, what the hell are you doing? Meade goes, you shouldn't bother since it already took you two hours to get it out here. And as they're having this conversation, as if to put an exclamation point, the first gun of Longstreet's barrage signaling his troops advance happens. And so Meade is like, you made your bed, you have to sleep in it. You have to hold this ground now. I need to go back to the army to bring also, up reinforcements. all of these 10,000 poor Irish people have to sleep in the bed too. <laughs> they're, they're actually in there and their feet are poking out the blankets at the yeah. bottom. It's gonna be rough. So the third corps might have been led by an incompetent, murderous, vainglorious, adulterous, and insubordinate son of a bitch, but it was a veteran fighting force. Its men had fought for nearly two years in some of the largest battles in American history. They lost every position that Sickles put them into on July 2nd, but they made the Confederates pay dearly for every yard of ground they gave up. July 2nd <laughs> is by far the bloodiest day of the Battle of Gettysburg. Nearly half of the Union casualties for the entire battle, which is about 11 to 12,000 men killed, wounded, or missing, were lost on the second day. Longstreet's Confederate First Corps, which is about, he's got about 30,000 men. They suffer 50% losses on the second day, and one of its division commanders, a guy named John Bell Hood, would receive a wound about 10 minutes after complaining to Longstreet that we shouldn't do this, this is a bad idea. About 10 minutes later, is shot in the arm, um, in the left arm, that would be crippled for life. He, he doesn't lose the arm, but he can't use it anymore. He has like a nerve was severed or whatever. Um, he would later, in the war, lose his right leg, uh, and then still go on to command a Confederate army badly. Well, he actually like, lost badly. his right leg on purpose to balance out his left arm. That was actually <laughs> maybe, maybe. <laughs> so, so so you had to get on a horse somehow, you know what I mean? <laughs> so Third Corps managed to extricate itself from its position, uh, but only with the help of units from the second, fifth, and twelfth corps. So nearly half the Union army has to be used to bail out Dan Sickles' ten thousand men who've gone way out on a limb into this very stupid sure. position. Um, and again, all, uh, all these other units are being led by West Pointers, and they're all going, stupid man. Stupid, stupid sickles. Mm -hmm. All right, but again, rich white dudes, so let's not totally trust their opinions. <laughs> right. I mean, I, you know. You could have sacrificed many more of the proletariat <laughs> if you had stayed on the right ridge. I, I'm just, all, all I'm going to say is that one of these, not one of these, he's commanding one of the other corps, is uh, Oliver Otis Howard, for whom Howard University is named, because he was the head of the Freedmen's Bureau and was an abolitionist. All right, Jesus Christ, Dr. Simmons, <laughs> you got me with that one. Oh, you're going to argue with the black Civil War commander? No, I'm not. All right, you got me. All right. Canceled. <laughs> That's like I'm, a dream, oh, deep cut right Don't get me wrong. He's a white guy. He's just... Oh, yeah, that's right. You couldn't... Uh, right. That's right. Uh, yeah. All right, we're probably going to cut this out. <laughs> <laughs> during, during all of this bloody fighting, Sickles' active military career came to an end. His right leg was smashed by a cannonball while sitting in the saddle. 
He was taken to the rear with one of his saddle straps being used as a tourniquet. Apparently, his men saw him going to the rear, calmly smoking a cigar and urging them on. That's By cool. July 5th... No, that's very... I mean, come that's on. Oh, it is. Yeah, very uh, Again, there, there, are three, there are three Union uh, Corps commanders who are killed or wounded at Gettysburg, and all three of them uh, are astoundingly brave. The one who dies is a man named John Reynolds, and his last words are... He's telling a group of Wisconsin and Michigan troops, the Iron Brigade, and he goes... Drive those dogs out of those woods, Iron Brigade forward. He's like a hundred yards from the front line and gets a bullet through the head. Damn. Um, Did he live? <laughs> he's super dead. Uh, and then Sickles is on the second day. He loses a leg to a cannonball and is calmly smoking a cigar. Uh, and then on the third day, uh, Winfield Scott Hancock during Pickett's, Pickett's charge. The Confederates are dropping all these artillery shells on Cemetery Ridge, and everyone else is hugging the ground, right? They're being shelled. And Hancock is just riding up and down the line on the back of a horse, you know, very tall. Uh, and someone comes up to him, a staff officer runs up to him and goes, Sir, please get down. We cannot spare you. And he goes, There are times when a Corps commander's life does not count. Mm. And he just keeps on going. And he'll get shot in the side and wounded pretty badly. So, I mean, again... But it's fine, because it didn't count. <laughs> uh, the, the, the wider point being, again, you in the Civil War, you had to be physically brave to be any kind of officer, to be even remotely effective. You had to be... You could be physically brave and stupid. Dan mm. Sickles is physically brave and stupid. John Bell Hood. You know... <laughs> Jury's out on sickle stupidity. I mean, I, yeah. dude kind of seemed like a baller. I don't know. You really not? Maybe he was long game. Long game. He was cool. smoking a cigar, coming off the field because he's like, "Oh man, the sex workers are gonna fucking love this." Get the runs. Tammy Hall for life. By July fifth, the battle ends on July third. By July 5th, Sickles was in Washington, D.C., talking with President Lincoln about how he, Dan Sickles, had single-handedly won the largest battle ever fought in North America. <laughs> oh, boy! Yes. Total Trump. That, that's a total yeah, Trump move to, Trump. like, inflate his old role in that whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> so, I just, want, I just have single-handedly, a... Single-handedly. Yeah, single. Yeah. So, I have... Oh, wait, how many soldiers were at Gettysburg? <laughs> Uh, both sides? Union, just Union. 85,000. 85,000. He's like, it, he, he just did it with one pistol. It, it <laughs> yeah, the pistol yeah. that he used to shoot the other guy. The <laughs> absolute wheelbarrow sized balls you have to, <laughs> <laughs> to be like 85,000 troops fought this battle single handedly won. You should have seen the shots I made. Fucking execution style. I stuck you like a fucking ninja. I cut his head off with a samurai sword <laughs> it's like a total weeb it's like <laughs> fucking neo in the matrix where it's just like, <laughs> like the whole confederacy is agent smith and he just fucked him up with a telephone pole or whatever. Uh, it's a telegraph pole Oh, <laughs> god damn it you're right god damn it you got me dr civics you got me so, so <clears throat> for me, personally, this has been the most interesting part. So the, the last part is called Part 3, After the War. It's only about a page and a half. So after the war, 
Sickles had shown the edges of capable generalship. He was aggressive, loved by his men, and had an amateurish mind for tactics, which given the quality of some other generals during the Civil War, either political or West Point trained, is actually high praise. Let's, let's, let's examine that for a minute. So he, okay, because my thesis is Sickles Baller, <laughs> Midas the womanizing, let's be clear. I'm gonna go real close to the microphone and say, Minus the woman I Sickles is a total baller. Uh, so he he has no training other than just being like a badass New York Tammany Hall politician. Just like, oh. And then yeah. he goes, and he's not the worst general. He's better than people trained at West fucking Point. The place you need a senator to like write off on for you to go there. I, I mean, yeah, that's. That that is true, uh, but the problem is is still and 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 admittedly, like you know, there are other political generals who who definitely do a lot worse. Like men like Benjamin Butler and, and Nathaniel P. Banks are are both pretty terrible. And uh, and but it, but there are definitely way better political generals. But so, are there are there worse West Point generals? Yeah, I mean Hooker. Hooker was a worse general just overall. Well, that's what I'm saying. Like, I mean, because Hooker, Hooker gets very close to cowardice at Chancellorsville. And McClellan. McClellan is terrible. But but what like but what the, I guess the point I'm making is like imagine any other profession. Like imagine you're an auto mechanic, and most auto mechanics go to auto mechanic school, and you just don't. You just like dick around on motorcycles for a while or whatever. Not even. And then you show up and you're better than half of them. That's not an indictment of you. That's an indictment of the entire education of everybody who's going through. Like, oh, I mean, yeah. And again, I think part of it is, and, and this is something, this is why I had that disclaimer at the beginning of the section, which was that no one in the United States had commanded more than a thousand mm -hmm. men, except for one guy who was 73 years old. Winfield Scott, 73 years old at the start of the Civil War. He's like 300 pounds. Can't get on his horse. Jesus. Still fucking though. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, this uh, podcast brought to you by Blue Chew. Been around for 165 years. Uh, one of the longest dip pill companies in existence, and this is all true. Continue. <laughs> so, however, had it not been, uh, had he not been wounded in such a stupid engagement, Meade almost certainly would have had him cashiered for disobeying his orders. Instead, the wound saved his reputation. He received the Medal of Honor, yeah, and his dope. leg went on display at the Smithsonian. Dope. Yeah. I mean, can you imagine your leg being preserved yeah. like he, that? Yeah. Like that's... Side note, he once gave a tour, or he was on a tour of the Smithsonian and insisted they go look at his you know, shattered leg bone. Uh, and was mad at the Smithsonian because they'd gotten rid of the foot bones. It, just, it was just the femur. Mm. And he's like, oh, hey, you did it wrong. Did he he's like, this is the best thing in this museum. Like, <laughs> nothing else matters yeah, yeah. in this museum. Yeah, yeah. Except, my, except my leg, yeah. yeah Absolutely. Yeah. And did he point at it and go, this is actually my third shortest appendage? <laughs> Sickles, without a leg, and disliked by most every other officer who mattered in the army, served the rest of the war in purely administrative roles. When the guns fell silent in April 1865, Sickles was to have another 49 years of his life. How do we think we s he spent them? I'm going to go ahead and say he's born again. Born again? <laughs> no? See, I think we can Get tell monk. him. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> he got into Buddhism real hard. It was crazy. 
So, so Sickles, uh, the remainder of Sickles' life consisted of three things. Continually assuming government posts and embarrassing himself while doing so. Hmm. Bad-mouthing General Meade and burnishing his Gettysburg reputation. If nothing else, he had the advantage of time for all three of these things. <laughs> he was the U.S. minister to Spain from 1869 to 1874, where he continued to be himself. During the Virginius Affair, the Virginius was an American ship that was caught by the Spanish Navy smuggling supplies to the Cuban rebels. Mm. Sickles dispatched, uh, dispatches from Spain called on the United States to declare war on that country, something the administration of Ulysses S. Grant did not want to do. So when war was avert, averted against his advice, he tendered his resignation as minister. Mm. But Spain had not been all disappointment. His first wife, Teresa, had died in 1868. <laughs> <laughs> you look, thank God for Spain! Yes! So as, oh a ba- as a bachelor in Spain, he apparently started an affair with the deposed Queen Isabella II. Damn. Which, which, which led to... Which led to nicknames of the Yankee King of Spain. So, oh my God! So he fucked his way into like sort of kingship. Kind of. <laughs> he then married one of her twenty-something ladies in waiting. He's now in his mid to late fifties. Did he go through the other nineteen? <laughs> <laughs> you keep trying to convince me this is a bad guy, Michael, but I don't know. Goddamn, Doctor Civics. Yeah, yeah, we're gonna cut that out. <laughs> So upon returning to the United States, he would be reelected to Congress, where all joking aside, he did do good work in preserving the Gettysburg battlefield, helping to raise the funds to purchase the land. Gettysburg is is probably one of the best preserved battlefields, and it's mainly Dan Sickles's doing because he's obsessed. Uh, Surprised he didn't put like a statue of himself in uh, the middle we'll, of it. We'll like, get to that. He put a, <laughs> he, he planted his leg, he's hoping like, another one of him would grow. <laughs> <laughs> to lose my leg. Ah, uh, yes. The Gettysburg <laughs> Battlefield by Dan Sickles. Uh. <laughs> so George Gordon Meade died in 1872. His life probably made shorter by the fact that he had to deal with Dan Sickles from 1863 onwards. He trolled him to death? Oh, <laughs> Basically, because Dan Sickles would badmouth Meade. He would would claim with no evidence (laughs) that Meade had planned to retreat from Gettysburg, that he was going to abandon this very advantageous position, and that only Sickles put the, like, steel into Meade's spine to make him fight. Uh, Which, again, no person there ever said, Mm. right? Um... He also said, I mean, that was before the internet where you could just make shit up all the time. <laughs> oh, like, God me. He, he, he absolutely benefits from no internet. Oh, good. good. He, Dan Sickles, again, maybe because Trump, you know. But um, <laughs> Trump benefits from more internet? I don't know. He also stated that his maneuver on the second day is what actually saved the army mm. because if he hadn't done this, uh, Longstreet somehow would have won the battle. There's a couple of historians who think that him making his core into a speed bump actually worked out. Uh, most historians go, you just got a bunch of people killed. Mm. Uh, there's absolutely no way this plan would have worked with or without you standing there. If you'd stand, stood is, half a mile back, it'd been fine too. This is the Red Rover come over. Yeah. Rover. <laughs> yeah. Um, so so this, this feud was made unseemly by the fact that George Gordon Meade was dead from 1872 until the time when Sickles died and Sickles kept trying to dunk on a dead guy who had been commander of the army. No, it's his fault for being fucking dead. Yeah, so... (laughs) (laughs) 
Sickles worked with the New York Monuments Commission for years until $27,000 went missing and he was dismissed on suspicion of embezzlement. Though at this point, he was nearly 90. There's some, one of the things I read in preparing for this was that he might have like started to suffer some, some kind of dementia and that he might have just misplaced the funds or that someone might have taken advantage of him. But either his way- His caretaker stole it and he just like was really <laughs> sure that his caretaker stole it the whole time even though he had no evidence. I mean, so either way, no one wanted to prosecute a 92 year old man for embezzlement. Civil War veteran. Civil War veteran yeah. who lost Hero his life. Hero of Gettysburg. Hero of Gettysburg, <laughs> lost a leg, had a Medal of Honor and all that. Full so. on pimp. <laughs> <laughs> International pimp. So, so he, he was quietly sort of let go. So when you go to the battle, when you go to the battlefield at Gettysburg, which again, I highly recommend if you haven't gone to go, it's very lovely. You'll be struck by the sheer volume of statuary. There are statues everywhere. Seemingly insignificant individuals have statues and the more significant people have more than one. Hmm. The Union Army of the Potomac had seven infantry corps. Every one of the corps commanders but one has a statue at Gettysburg. Dan Sickles was asked later in his life, how he felt about not having a monument on the field where he lost a leg. His response, the entire battlefield is a memorial to Dan Sickles. Oh, oh shit. That's very Trumpian. <laughs> yeah. That's very Trumpian. So when you're like, hey, is, is there a giant statue in the middle? No, there isn't. But there is him just going the whole thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Dude, that's a great, that's, oh my God, that's amazing. I think all the time about this, all the time I think about if I could like go back in time to the, like that era, just how just absolutely better than everyone we would be like just, oh I'm, so I'm, I'm gonna just i just this, the historian in me is is actually re just does not like that line of thinking because we we tend to fall into this trap that people in the past were stupid they're not stupid they're just they don't have access to the information we have yeah they don't know anything no they, they don't but no, no, they, no. they know they're, lots they're of stupid things and they're just ignorant mm. and here's the thing either works for a con man <laughs> <laughs> you, you know what i mean you're just like you know I, I always. Uh, did you ever read a uh, Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court? I've read portions. I've read portions. Of Absolutely, that. all you gotta do is mm -hmm. like understand electromagnetism better than everyone else, and you're just a millionaire. Like it's so easy. You're just like, oh, I did magic. Pay me. And, like it doesn't. It's not I, I mean, unless they, you know, burn you at the stake. Right. I mean, you're 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 you're, right. you're gambling there. Right. Yeah. I, I just. I'm but just you have a time machine, so it's like deuces. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, we're, <laughs> we're uh, yeah. Isn't the premise of that story that, that the Connecticut Yankee can't find his way home? That's why he's stuck. He eventually finds his way home, but I think he gets poisoned by oh. Merlin, and then more, Merlin poisons him because he's jealous. Because well, yeah. yeah. I mean, I'd be jealous too. We yeah. He I didn't don't take his tower, I, don't, right? I don't understand how electromagnets work. <laughs> <laughs> Magic. <laughs> <laughs> Good enough. All right. Well, that's been our yeah, that's absolute yep. pilot episode. Uh, we hope everybody likes it. Like mm -hmm. and share. And we will see you next month. Yep. Thanks a lot.